Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Another week in Europe, another terrorist attack, this time on one of the continent's best-known pedestrian thoroughfares, Las Ramblas in Barcelona. Guy Hedgeco will update us on the police investigation into last Thursday's events in Catalonia. And later, I'll be talking to Daniel McLaughlin about Washington's deepening involvement in the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But first to Catalonia, where on Thursday afternoon last, a suspected Islamist militant drove a van down Las Ramblas in Barcelona at high speed, killing 13 people and injuring more than 100. After making his getaway on foot, the driver is then believed to have hijacked a car at knife point and stabbed its occupant to death. Eight hours later, a car ploughed into pedestrians at Cambrils, 100 kilometres down the coast from Barcelona. A Spanish woman was killed. All five occupants of the car, some wearing fake suicide belts, were shot dead by the police. On Monday, the man named by police as having carried out the attack on Las Ramblas, Yunus Abu Yacoub, aged 22, was also shot by police in the Subarats area about an hour west of Barcelona. Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent in Spain, spent the weekend in Barcelona in the aftermath of the attacks and he joins me now. Guy, are the police confident that all of those who were involved in last Thursday's attacks are either dead or in custody? Yes, they are. I mean, the police are working throughout this investigation on the, with the theory that there were 12 people involved in this terrorist cell and four of them have been arrested and eight of them are now dead. Um, and that includes, obviously, Yunis Abu Yaqub, the man who was shot down in the town of Subirats. So the police are saying that the cell has been dismantled. They have accounted for all those members of the cell. Um, but that's not to say that the investigation as a whole will not continue and that they won't follow up on it, obviously. So, Guy, just to recap then on those 12, um, as I mentioned in my introduction, there were six men shot dead in the in the aftermath of the attacks, five on the day, and then yesterday, the, the suspected van driver. Um, but just to recap on the, the two people who died uh, in an explosion on the, on the Wednesday night, what do we know about that? Were, were these people involved in, in, in allegedly or su- suspected to have been making explosives um, to be used in these attacks? Yes, that's right. I mean, these are people who the police believe were part of that 12-man cell. Um, that explosion you talked about is uh, took place in the town of Alcanar, um, and it was on Wednesday night. Initially, the, the police believed that it was some kind of drug laboratory that had blown up out in Alcanar. Um, and then as the investigation continues, uh, they started to come around to the theory that actually this was a, a, a key um, part of the investigation into the, the terrorist cell. Um, one of those who was blown up was Abdelbaki Essati. He was an imam and he is seen as the man who recruited uh, the other 11 um, and he kind of the mastermind behind all of this. Um, he came from the town of Ripoll. Well, he, he lived in the town of Ripoll, um, as in many of those um, in the cell. But he's seen as absolutely key in it. He has a, a, quite a checkered history. Um, he had lived in Belgium for a while, but he had difficulties getting a permit to work as, uh, as an imam there. He also spent some time in prison in Spain on drug trafficking charges as well. So a very colourful past. And clearly, he's central to all of this. And you actually visited the town of Ripoll on, on Saturday, and um, I think you actually visited his flat. Did you find anything out about him? Was there anybody there who knew um, more about what he had been had what he had been up to? Well, that, that's right. I did go up to his flat, which was sort of open at the time on Saturday, and his flatmate was there, um, a man, a Moroccan man who spoke very little Spanish and who had only spent a few weeks living there and had, had shared the flat for just a few weeks with Abdelbaki Sati. Uh, the flatmate really didn't have anything of interest to say. He said he, he, he knew absolutely nothing about 
um, his extremist activities. Um, and he, he knew nothing certainly about um, the, the terror attack before it happened. Um, but certainly the, the finger seems to be pointing very firmly in, in the direction of Abdel Baki Asati. The, the, the relatives of the, the young men involved have pointed at him and said he is responsible. Um, and clearly the police think he's an important figure in all of this. And is there is it confirmed now that he did, did die in that explosion? Because there was a lot of confusion initially, wasn't there? And, and people, there was there were reports of him having fled and so on. But our police are satisfied that he did die in, the, in, in that initial explosion on Wednesday night. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is one of many sort of important strands of the investigation, which sort of came out in bits and pieces. And at first it was being reported by the Spanish media that the police believed he'd been blown up in that explosion. Then later, the, the police did actually confirm it. And they said, yes, uh, one of those who was killed was Abdel Baki Asati, this, this imam. So, yeah, he has been confirmed as one of those um, who was killed in that explosion. So that means eight of the 12 who were suspected to be involved in this terrorist cell are now dead. The four other men are due to appear in court uh, today, uh, Tuesday, as we speak. And three of those men are also from Ripoll. What did you find in Ripoll, Guy, in general? Um, what kind of reaction was there from residents about the fact fact that um, they had discovered that it seems three, three or, or actually more people living in their community were involved in these attacks on, on Thursday. Well, people were absolutely stunned. They couldn't believe it. Um, I mean, obviously, there was the general shock that the attack had happened. Um, they were stunned that so many, um, seven of the young men uh, from the cell apparently were from the town, plus the imam who wasn't from the town, but lived in the town, uh, also, in, also living in the town. Um, so apart from the, the general shock at the attack itself, they, they, they were confused. They didn't understand how it could happen because, um, I mean, the, the family members were explaining how these were young men who were, for the most part, you know, well-behaved, good students. Most of them had jobs. Um, they didn't seem to be involved in any kind of extremist activity. And also when I spoke to, to the local Catalans in the town, they said the same thing. They, one man said to me, these guys were 100% integrated. They spoke fluent Catalan, fluent Spanish. They may have spoken Arabic at home, but socially they were integrated. There was no kind of ghettoization of the, of the Moroccan community. And there are about 650 or so Moroccans in Ripoll, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a small town of 11,000. So, you know, in, in such a small town, they make up quite a large community. Um, but there was this, this general sort of bewilderment. Um, and later on in the day, um, the, the mother of uh, Yunis Abu Yaqub, the man who was shot dead by police um, yesterday and who is believed to have been the man who drove the van into the crowds in Barcelona, she appeared absolutely distraught. And she came out and, and called on her son, um, to turn himself in to police. Um, and she seemed as, as confused and shocked and bewildered as anyone. And so had any of these men come to the attention of the authorities at all, um, you know, prior to these incidents last week? Well, as far as we know, no, they hadn't. Um, I mean, the 11 of them were very young men. The youngest was a 17-year-old, um, Musa Ukabir. Um, the others were sort of either teenagers or in their 20s uh, mainly um, or in their early 30s. But most of them were sort of late teens or early 20s. So, you know, they didn't have uh, they didn't have criminal records. Certainly what the police have said is none of them had uh, criminal records for terrorist related activities. Um, and even the imam now who, who did have a criminal record for drug trafficking, um, apparently didn't have um, any kind of record for um, jihadist activity. So, 
people are starting to ask questions now about why that was the case. Why had he not been sort of tracked more effectively by the authorities or by the intelligence services? And as always, Guy, after an attack of this sort, questions will always be asked about how well or otherwise the authorities were prepared for for this. What do you think is the feeling there now? Are are people reassured by the swift response of the police in, in identifying the perpetrators so quickly? Or are there concerns about the fact that, as you just mentioned, this imam was allowed to to operate or the the fact that a cell of this size could apparently, you know, get so far without being apprehended? I think there's a mixed picture, really. Um, I mean, there seems to be a sort of general feeling of goodwill, certainly in Catalonia, towards the Catalan police, who've been the sort of the, the ones who've. Um, who've been kind of to the forefront of this investigation. They, yeah, they shot dead the five terrorists in that car in the town of Camrils, um back on Thursday, oh, sorry, in the early hours of Friday. They were the ones who shot dead um, Yunus Abu Yaqob yesterday. So they've kind of been in the spotlight more than anyone else. And so um, perhaps unsurprisingly, they've, um, they've, they've sort of been seen in quite a positive light, I think, for the most part. Um, but people are wondering about... You know, that, that, that issue of intelligence, why was this allowed to happen in this small town of 11,000 people? How were a dozen people able to sort of meet apparently regularly um, and to prepare such a, a, a big terrorist attack um, without being detected, without their you know, local people, without the friends of the people involved apparently being aware of it? Um, so that's a sort of big question being asked at the moment. There is also another issue of um, the sort of uh, the, the, the split between Catalonia and the rest of Spain. And there has been, have been some reports that perhaps the, the authorities in Barcelona and Madrid haven't worked quite as well together as they should have done because of political issues over Catalonia's uh, independence drive. I mean, that's a sort of slightly separate political issue. Um, but I think there are, there are a number of issues that the authorities want to follow up on. But having said all that, overall, there is a feeling that the, the emergency services responded very swiftly to that initial attack on Thursday. And that was probably because they were bracing for something like this. They were perhaps almost expecting it, not necessarily in Barcelona, but certainly somewhere in Spain. And you mentioned the independence issue there, Guy. We did have the unusual sight, I suppose, last week of the pro-independence Catalan president, Carlos Puigdemont, standing shoulder to shoulder with the Spanish Prime Minister, Mariano Rajoy, and even members of the royal family. Um, but is there, any, is there any sense in which this, will this incident play into the independence debate in any way? Um, are there any sort of implications arising from it? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I think... It, it probably won't play a big role, but um, having said that, you know, it, it, the, the, this independence vote, which is due to take place on October the 1st, against the wishes of the uh, central government, um, you know, it's, it's a very divisive vote, and um, it's caused a, a lot of tensions between Barcelona and Madrid, and there are sort of a, a lot of, it seems like there are a lot of sort of related um, tensions around this. For example, next Saturday, uh, an anti-terrorism march is being scheduled in central Barcelona, and King Felipe VI is among those who's due to take uh, part in it. And now one of the radical, or one of the the, the more radical uh, pro-independence political parties, the CUP, or CUP, has said that it won't take part if uh, King Felipe VI is involved because of his, because of the royal family's involvement in, uh, for example, uh, um, Saudi Arabia and arms deals and so on, allegedly. Um, so, you know, you can see there that that's just a kind of hint of the tensions that are going on in mainstream politics. Um, 
I think we're going to we'll find out in the next few days how serious um, or how seriously the the independence debate will play into all of this. My feeling is that probably after a few days things will calm down, and once the the sort of all the the interest in the the terrorism attack um, and the shock of it has died down a bit, um, politicians will start talking about the Catalan issue again and. The, the terrorism issue will fade into the background. But of course, it's going to be a sort of um, subplot or, or it's going to be in the background of Spanish politics for some time to come. And um, finally, Guy, just what was your initial sense? I mean, immediately after the attack, it's early to say, I know, but we know Barcelona as being a particularly vibrant, confident, sort of open city. Do you think this attack will have an impact on the atmosphere in the city or um, will it recover and, and, and carry on being the same Barcelona that we, we all sort of know and love so much? Well, I mean, I was, I was surprised uh, in the immediate aftermath of the attack at how sort of normal it seemed, um, really almost the day after. I mean, of course, you know, there were these these shrines of candles and photos and teddy bears laid out down the Ramblas and people were stopping to look at these and take photos of it and, you know, giving a kind of respectful silence um, as they walked down the Ramblas. Um, so it was a quieter place than normal. This is just the day after. But at the same time, there were still a lot of tourists around and they didn't seem particularly um, sort of put off, um, I think. You know, there was a heavy police presence, perhaps, you know, heavier than, than normal. So that seemed to reassure people. But I suppose the big question now is, you know, going forward, are people still going to be worried? Um, there, there, there's going to be a big debate about, you know, where where the authorities should put bollards already in the wake of this attack. They've put up some massive flower pots around Sant's railway station to stop anyone doing the same thing there. That's just um, up the road from, from the Ramblas. Um, my, my feeling is that I don't think it will. It, I don't think it should affect um, the, the, the tourists who who come to Barcelona. Um, normally, the sort of European tourists, um, I think, are unlikely to be perturbed. Um, it's it's such a big attraction. I think people will be reassured by the response that the the authorities have given, that certainly that the police have given to this last attack. Um, so that's the feeling I have. Okay, Guy, thanks a lot for that. Thank you very much, Chris. U.S. Secretary of Defense James Mattis will be in Kiev on Thursday with the new U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, to discuss future areas of enhanced cooperation between the U.S. and Ukrainian governments. For more on this story, Daniel McLaughlin joins me now. Dan, this visit to Kiev by Jim Mattis takes place against the background of the conflict in eastern Ukraine between government forces and pro-Russian separatists. It might almost be described as Europe's forgotten war. It, it's getting maybe so little international coverage these days. But what is the current state of play? Sure, Chris. Um, I mean, we, we still have a supposed ceasefire in the east um, as part of this, this Minsk uh, peace agreement back in 2015, which was supposed to try and bring an end to the conflict. But the fact is people are still being killed almost every day in the east and they're, they're certainly being injured every day soldiers, fighters on the separatist and Russian side, and also civilians. Um, we're, we're up past 10,000 people now killed in this conflict, which began back in uh, the spring of 2014. About 1.6 million have been displaced from their homes, uh, either going elsewhere in Ukraine or into Russia for the most part. Um, but on the ground, we still have this sort of rumbling conflict. Uh, we still have shelling 
uh, you could say overnight, almost every night, pretty much every night, the shelling along the front line. Um, we still have um, skirmishes between the separatists and Russian forces and the um, and the Ukrainian troops, um, and it just really grinds on without any uh, without any prospect of a of a resolution either on the battlefield or at the negotiating table at the moment. And who's doing the shelling down? Is it both sides? Yeah, it's both sides. Uh, both sides blame each other. I mean, it's it's every night and every every uh, all the reports every every subsequent day say pretty much the same thing. They accuse each other of starting the firing. They accuse each other of targeting civilian areas. Um, and meanwhile, they're they're moving very very close together now. They're 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 inching forward. They're fighting, particularly in areas close to Mariupol. That's down on the. Um, on the southern coast, on the on the Sea of Azov, and also particularly around a, a, a town called Avdivka, which is a key uh, road and rail junction. They're, they're the two main areas where we see skirmishes and shelling. Now, um, the international monitors of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe report in, on it all the time, um, but it is just a constant low-level conflict um, that we can't find a way, can't, well, we haven't been able to find a way out of, and we, we don't see any clear way out of at the moment. And in fact, you, you've written an article, your latest article on this, which will be published shortly on irishtimes.com, and in fact, notwithstanding that there is supposed to be a ceasefire in place, there have been more than twice as many civilian casualties in the first half of this year than there were in the first half of 2016. That's right. Um, and a lot of it does go under the radar. I mean, obviously, in Ukraine, it's the top story every day. Um, and so many families in Ukraine have been touched by this, uh, with, with either soldiers going out to serve or being trained or knowing people who've been injured or killed out in the east or displaced people coming to uh to towns and cities further west in the country to try and rebuild their lives. So it's it's huge news there, but it's it's been going on for so long, and it is such a grinding and relatively low-level conflict that it's it's not often making the headlines anymore. But it's still there, and obviously, in when it comes to international relations, geopolitical questions between the United States, Europe, and Russia, it's still right at the top of the agenda. And we're going to talk now in particular about the United States and its role in this uh, conflict and potential role maybe in, in helping to bring it to an end. Before we come to that, I, I presume when Donald Trump was elected president, given his uh, apparent admiration for Vladimir Putin, there must have been concern in Kiev about whether the US would continue to be a reliable ally. There was a huge amount of concern. And I think it's it's fair to say it's uh, it can't really be disputed that, that most people in um, in power in Ukraine and in official circles would have preferred to see Hillary Clinton win that election last year because she seemed to be much tougher on Russia. And I mean, all the questions that still surround the relationship between Trump and his circle in Russia were, were of huge concern then to Ukraine, and they remain a concern today. Um, there was a, a worry that, that, that Trump would push very quickly for a, a rapprochement with, with Russia, with uh, Vladimir Putin and Ukraine would be the main victim of that, that it would basically be sacrificed to whatever deal Trump and Putin came to, uh, to get uh, Russia and US relations back on track. Um, that hasn't happened. And what's very interesting, while we see Trump, I mean, not still not criticizing Putin, really not criticizing Russia, not saying very much about Ukraine. Um, some of his other, some of uh, the, the senior officials in the US administration from um, the envoy to the UN, uh, Nikki Haley, to the defense minister, James Mattis, 
uh, even Rex Tillerson, who had, you know, pretty good relationship with, with a lot of powerful people in Moscow during his, his time as an oil man with Exxon. Um, and now this, uh, the new U.S. special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker, they've been pretty strong in criticizing Russia in, in putting the blame for this continued conflict uh, squarely in Russia's court and saying that that um, the United States is determined to stand behind Ukraine and defend its territorial integrity, not recognize the annexation by Russia of Crimea and continue to put pressure on Russia to um, to stop meddling in eastern Ukraine and, and to take the lead role in ending the conflict there. And I think it's fair to say that there, it's more than uh, the US is offering more than just words in support because you've just um, paid a visit to, and in fact the same article I referred to a moment ago deals with this, to Yavoriv where there's a, I don't know, do you, would you call it a training camp, or, but, but where there are officers from the US and other NATO states providing training and logistical support to Ukrainian soldiers in preparation for their, um, their role on, on, on the battlefield against uh, the, the, the pro-Russian separatists. Isn't that right? So there's there's, there's there's hard sort of logistical on-the-ground support being offered here by the US. Absolutely, yeah. And this is also an aspect of um, of the situation in Ukraine that, that I think is, is underreported sometimes, quite how involved the US and other NATO countries and EU countries are in develop in helping develop Ukraine in various ways, helping Ukraine to develop in various ways, um, including militarily. Um, to bring it closer into the Western fold and to help it counter this this aggression from Russia. Um, in terms of the story that, that we're going to publish soon, this reporting from Yavoriv, uh, it is a huge um, training area and firing range in Western Ukraine, close to the border with Poland. It's only about 40 kilometers or something from the Polish border. So right on the other side of the country to the, to the conflict. And since 2015, the United States has led the way in training Ukrainian troops and um, providing logistical support. Something like more than 4,000 Ukrainian troops have now gone through a 55-day training course that the, uh, that the U.S. military provides for them. When I was there, it was members of the Oklahoma National Guard training um, a unit of, of Ukrainian paratroopers. Um, as well as this training, they are um, the United States is providing as I say, equipment to the Ukrainian army. So far, that has been what they call non-lethal aid. It's things like night vision gear, um, body armor, anti-artillery radar, medical kits, uh, vehicles like old Humvees and things like this. Um, but there is talk now. This is this is why the visit of Volker to Kiev uh, and Mattis this week is particularly interesting because there is a lot of talk in Washington now. And, and hopes in Ukraine that um, the United States may be preparing to provide much more serious weaponry, deadly weaponry to the Ukrainian military, including, and this is something that the Ukrainian troops talk about quite often, um, very powerful anti-tank missiles. Uh, the United States has a javelin system, which the Ukrainian, a system called javelin, which the Ukrainians think would be very useful against Russian tanks and armored vehicles out in eastern Ukraine. Um, so that's going to be, we think, high on the agenda this week when they talk. There's no decision on that yet, but um, American media have been reporting for a little while that both the State Department and the uh, the Defense Department in the United States are backing that idea to provide uh, this um, 
this defensive weaponry, as they call it, but is, it is very much deadly high-tech weaponry to the Ukrainian troops to, to raise the cost, if you like, to the separatists in eastern Ukraine and the Russian troops that, that back them up um, from pushing any further into Ukraine or, or turning what is a sort of semi, um, semi-frozen conflict into, into a hot war again. Presumably, though, Annie, uh, if the US does deepen its engagement in Ukraine and, and provide this level of support that you just outlined there to the uh, Ukrainian government, that's not going to be very helpful to US-Russia relations, is it? Is there any concern? Do you, are you aware of any concern at that level in Washington about the possibility of provoking maybe a response from Vladimir Putin? Well, that has always been the, the, the American stance so far. Um, under President Obama, America was providing um, this non-lethal aid that I mentioned to you there. But they always stopped short of going further and providing more serious weaponry because they were worried that this would provoke um, a Russian response on the ground in eastern Ukraine, um, and just and they would ju- you just the, the two sides would simply get into a kind of escalation war, um, which the West, the United States, could not really win. I mean, Russia's right there on the border with Ukraine. The border is open, and it can flood the area. It can flood eastern Ukraine with soldiers and weapons whenever it wants to. Um, so. This is the calculation, really. It seems with this latest push, particularly from Kurt Volker, who dismissed uh, out of hand on his first visit to Ukraine last month, this claim that that Russia could be provoked by the provision of, of weapons to Ukraine, uh, that Russia could be provoked by the provision of, Ukra- of weapons to Ukraine. He was saying that Russia's already there, um, that there are more Russian tanks in eastern Ukraine, he said, than all the armies of Western Europe have combined. So he said, you know, it's too late to worry about provoking Russia. Russia's already there. What what the West needs to do is change Russia's calculation. Um, and some th- there is a general feeling that America thinks something new has to be done. The Minsk talks are the Minsk peace deal is effectively moribund. It's not going anywhere. The um, the Norman so-called Normandy format talks between Ukraine, Russia, France, and Germany uh, haven't achieved any real progress in a very long time. So there is a feeling that if there is to be um, a resolution to this to this conflict, a peaceful resolution, a, a peaceful resolution now to this conflict, um, and if there is to be some way of getting in the future, whenever that may be, uh, Russia-U.S. relations back on track, there has to be um, a very clear change in the approach to resolving this conflict. Now, this seems to be what Volker has in mind. We don't need to know the details of his new approach yet. But on Monday, he did meet with his uh, his counterpart on the Russian side, Vladislav Surkov. He's a very senior Kremlin aide who deals with the Ukrainian situation for Vladimir Putin. They met in Minsk on Monday. We don't know what was discussed, but Surkov did come out of those talks saying that both sides uh, had very cordial talks and that they came with fresh ideas and innovative approaches to this question of how to resolve the conflict in Ukraine. Whether we will find out any more about what was discussed there later this week, we don't know. But um, Ukraine is, uh, the American officials rather are, are clearly keen to get to Ukraine soon. They're coming on Wednesday and Thursday to meet top Ukrainian officials to let Kiev know that nothing is being decided behind their back. This is a key fear of Ukraine's. So um, at the meetings between top Ukrainian officials, James Mattis and Kurt Volker on Thursday, which happens to be Ukraine's Independence Day, which is a, a, a very significant 
moment to have top top American officials in Kiev for Ukraine. Um, we might find out to, uh, more about what's been discussed, more about the American plans for moving this this stumbling peace process forward, and we might figure out um, uh, what what direction, uh, what new direction, if any, this. Um, this peace process could take. Right. And just, you mentioned Kurt Volker there several times, Dan. He, he, he seems, his arrival on the scene does seem to have changed the dynamic to some degree, or, or, or is that right? I mean, who, what's his background really and what, um, um, what, what's he kind of bringing to, to, to the party, as it were? Well, it's very interesting that, that you know, considering, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Trump's um, enthusiasm for better relations with Russia, it's very interesting that Volker was chosen because he's seen as quite hawkish on Russia. Um, and certainly that reputation has been borne out in, in his early comments on the Ukrainian situation. When he paid his first visit to Ukraine, as I mentioned last month, he went out to the east, he had a look around, um, and he came out with a statement which you know, was greeted with little short of jubilation, really, in Kiev, because he said... Um, the conflict out there is down to Russia. We know what's going on. It's up to Russia to uh, to take the first steps to stop this conflict. Um, and he emphasized, as I mentioned, that there is a huge amount of Russian armor already in eastern Ukraine. So he very much put the onus on Russia to take the first steps to resolve this conflict. Um, that's essentially the line that, that Kiev's um, been telling the world for, for three years now. Um, so... Kiev has certainly welcomed his early statements. We've heard uh, words along similar lines from James Mathis, in fact, as well, since he took over as defense secretary. So um, we'll see. I mean, w with this, with with um, with Volker's first meeting with Vladislav Surkov, the Kremlin aide, um, that will should have given him a much clearer picture of where Russia stands on this and whether there is a window of opportunity to try and come to some kind of agreement, perhaps bypassing Minsk, perhaps by, bypassing this, uh, this Normandy format, to try and come to, 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 to come to some kind of arrangement in the relatively near future over, over this conflict. I mean, we should remember that just before, uh, that just before Volker was appointed, Rex Tillerson, the, the US Secretary of State, said that he thought it could be possible that um, outside of all the, the various talks and peace processes that are going on at the moment, Ukraine and Russia could together find some kind of way out of this crisis and this conflict. So they are looking for, for new approaches. They are looking for new ways to sort this out. Um, and this week may reveal um, some more about the American thinking on that. And I suppose, Dan, just finally, the, the $6 million question that none of us can answer is where where does Donald Trump personally stand in this? Because we've seen in so many areas of foreign policy where his uh, envoys and representatives might take take one line, but then he might take another. And I, I, would, would, it be, would there be still some nervousness in Kiev until it's clear that Trump actually, that, that Kurt Volker... Kurt, Kurt Volker's line represents what you know Donald Trump's thinking on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think on on so many issues regarding this American administration, that's that's the big question. Um, where does Trump stand, and and do his officials really speak for him? Um, we haven't heard Trump come out really strongly um, to criticise Russia's behaviour in Ukraine. We haven't seen uh, or heard great statements of support from Trump for Ukraine, um, and. We remember the, the first meeting between uh, Trump and Putin was a, a, a 
a very kind of cordial, you could say even a jovial affair. Um, whereas when Petro Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president, visited Washington in, in hopes of, of talks with Trump, he only got a kind of a, a few minutes in a, a drop in uh, a drop in meeting when he popped into um, into the White House to talk to Trump when he was uh, when he was holding a meeting with other officials. So um, we really don't know where Trump stands on it. Um, and uh, that's certainly the feeling in Kiev. They're hoping for a, for a strong message of messages of support again this week. As I mentioned, it is particularly symbolic that Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, will be in Kiev on Ukraine's Independence Day. That's Thursday. But um, where Trump stands on this is still um, is still really anyone's guess right now. OK, well, well, we'll just keep an eye on his Twitter account and see, see what emerges. But um, uh, Dan, in the meantime, thanks very much for that. Thanks, Chris. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Goodbye for now.